What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 84 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. We are so glad you are here and you have joined us today under these circumstances. What are the circumstances? I don't know. It just feels like there's always some shit going on in the world, and, you know, I'm just glad you're here. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, Mike. How you doing, Mike? Doing good. Doing good. How about you? Oh, I'm a little frustrated right now. Um, anybody who's been keeping up with me on Facebook, uh, which are two of you. Um, I, that damn possum? Yes. That darn possum? I've had a possum living under my bathtub now. I feel like this is going to become to the level of legendary status as your toe almost. But uh, I've had this damn possum living in my underneath my bathroom uh, I took the wooden panel off to my closet, which leads to the back uh, or the inside of the bathroom wall. I did that yesterday, and I saw the possum in the wall. We made eye contact, and <laughs> then I got freaked That's out. That's awkward. It was very awkward uh, because you was don't. It like, was it like a slow? Like, did he recognize it? Did he realize it too that this was happening? Is it one of those like time stands still? And it's only like a few seconds, but it feels like it's an hour. Jeez, Mike, we weren't having a romantic fucking encounter. It was just <laughs> an eye stare. Uh, no, we made eye contact. I got freaked out. I put the wood panel back. I taped that fucker shut. <laughs> because you don't... Okay, yes, possums are cute. Much like many other small furry animals, uh, they are cute. But you don't expect to see them inside your house in the wall. That is not where they're supposed to go. That is creepy. So... I went out to the department store and I got a a animal trap for small animals. And I set the cage up in my backyard and there's a hole in this grating on the skirting of the bottom of my house where you can see where the point of entry of, of, the, of said possum. So I set the cage up and I don't know, I took a slice of pepperoni pizza in the refrigerator. I tore it up into pieces and I threw the last piece in the very back of the possum trap. And um, then I came, went to my karaoke gig. I came home. I noticed all the pizza's gone. The trap door is halfway shut. The damn sides of the trap were too, um, I guess, con they kind of like concaved inward. And it, it, it hung the trap up, the trap door up, to where it left just enough room for the, the possum to scamper out. So, <laughs> so, I took, so I took the trap and I bent the sidewalls of it out. So the trap door could flow freely up and down easier. I swear, folks, this is not a podcast about possums. I just got to get this story out. <laughs> this is not the possum cast. No, although that's not <laughs> a bad name for a podcast. <laughs> so once the trap door was able to swing freely, I took yet another one of my pieces of pizza. So, so he's had two at this point, and I throw that in the trap. I wait maybe an hour or two right before I go to bed. I go to bed real late, folks, because I'm a DJ. I work nights, basically. I'm going to bed. It's like 5 a.m. I look through the window with my flashlight, and what do I see in the trap? The possum. Victory. I caught him. It worked. It felt so good. I went out there. <laughs> I propped up a paint bucket against the trap door so he couldn't pry it open. I threw a blanket over the cage so the sun, the morning sun, wouldn't beat down right on the possum because I'm a humanitarian, damn it. I still care about the possum. I just don't want it in my fucking wall. So anyway, I go to bed 
and I'm like, I'll deal with it tomorrow. It can spend the night in jail. I've spent the night in jail before, you know, it, it can live. It's got some pizza in there still. I wake up today, I, I eat some breakfast, I, I go to uncover the blanket and take the possum to greener pastures, and like a fucking magic trick, the possum is not in the cage. <laughs> the paint bucket is now sitting upright instead of leaning on the trap door, and the trap door's open just enough to where that bastard was apparently able to squeeze out. So, through the will of the possum, he was able to overcome the man-made incarceration that I put him in. This is rather fitting, actually. It is rather Since, fitting. Uh, you know, we're going to be talking about the infamous Alcatraz escape. So You're correct, sir. It is fitting. So, yes, uh, but unlike Alcatraz, the possum did successfully escape. Although, the point could be, actually, it's still an unsolved mystery. I shouldn't say unlike Alcatraz, because really, it's up in the air. No one knows. If the men truly did not escape, we would have the bodies of three men right now. But we don't. Yep. We don't have those bodies. So, um, yeah, this is a, a, a podcast about the show Unsolved Mysteries. It's a fan podcast. You can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. We have various benefits on there. I just posted the audio version of my uh, Unsolved Mysteries, the revamp versus the original video, which is a video of uh, how me and Mike first met many years ago. So that's <laughs> in audio form on Patreon. And uh, it makes for a good little audio uh, show. Uh, I was surprised how much uh, you didn't really need to see it visually to still get a lot of the points I was trying to make. So um, yeah, you consider consider supporting us on there. Um, we have a Facebook fan group that you can join. Just go to facebook.com and search Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar and uh, our group uh, will surely come up. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot better than our fan page. Our fan page, uh, fan pages on Facebook are worthless. Uh, it's impossible to communicate to people. If other people try to communicate with us, it just shoves your comment to the side and, and you know, we want to hear from you. We don't want you shoved off to the side, so join our group. Uh, anyway, we're talking about the Escape from Alcatraz. Now, this is in a series of us redoing some of our earlier segments because uh, back in the olden days, you know, as I said in the previous podcast, uh, we, we really want to knock out the big hitters of Unsolved Mysteries, our favorite segments, because we weren't sure how long we were going to do the podcast for. Well, as a result of our novice uh, capabilities back then, a lot of the audio sounded like complete dog shit. And I don't know, I just had the thought about a week or so ago, like, why should these good cases, uh, these these good cases deserve better, basically. They deserve better, better audio treatment, so that's why we're talking about them again. And if you try to go on our SoundCloud and look up these old episodes, they're not even there anymore anyway. I deleted them, so... Because uh, the audio is that bad, I don't want uh, don't want to hear. I don't want you guys to hear it. Um, so yeah, we've talked about this one before, but we were revisiting it. Um, yeah, this is a pretty awesome case, actually. Um, I forgot how awesome and amazing this segment was, and until I sat down and rewatched it again, and I think one of the things that really makes it stand out is that it is shot in Alcatraz. Right. And it uses a lot of the same props and things like like that that were supposedly used in the actual escape attempt. And you can definitely tell that this is a segment that had a budget behind it. Uh, this is a, this is part of a hour long special, I think, or hour and a half long. Wasn't this like a longer episode? Yes. Than normal. 
Yeah, it was really long. And, and one thing that I didn't realize until I rewatched um, the segment. The Amazon? No, I did not watch this on Amazon. I have I have not seen the Alcatraz segment on Amazon Prime. I have only seen this on the Ultimate Collection box set. And I've seen it on a Lifetime VHS rip that uh, I have from a long time ago that I did totally by myself. Um, I watched that today and I didn't realize until watching it the lifetime version and the version that was on my box set are two totally different versions yes yes I did not realize that the lifetime version um well actually when it originally aired it was the legit version then lifetime actually did kind of hack it down a little bit but um there's a lot more um on the site stuff that unsolved mysteries did um, the yeah. outside of reenactments, uh, they actually had like a professional swimmer out there. That was so corny. Like that was that was like something straight out of a reality show. It did not fit Unsolved Mysteries at all. No, it did not. But it it was in the vein of the kind of stuff that those '90s kind of shows did. Late '80s shows. Well, the, yeah. well, those shows on Fox, like you know how you know magic tricks revealed and you know police. Yeah, but that chases. was later on. Like this was still kind of out there for the time period because this was season one. So. Season one was in 88 or 89. So I guess it was closer to something like uh, the ba Battle of the Network Stars <laughs> no, I mean, than anything I, else. I see where you would think that the extra Alcatraz stuff they shot um, was corny. And, and I'll get into that in more detail uh, later on. But um, yeah, for right now, um, yeah, this is, this is an amazing segment. This was one of my favorite segments. It's like a little miniature fucking movie. Uh, yeah, it really is. Uh, the acting is right up there with what you'd see in a pretty solid uh, direct-to-video, low-budget film. The Jeez, that, uh, that made it sound actually kind of shitty just on how you described it. What? That's not... It's not a theatrical movie. I mean, I can't say, lie and say that's the low the Low budget straight-to-video doesn't usually connotate good movies, in my, in my mind at least. Well, there are some good low-budget straight-to-video straight films, like an indie movie with a lower budget, but they manage to work around it and still make a solid film. What's the that, first one that comes to I... mind when you think of something like that? Oh, there's quite a few, um, but usually a lot of the ones that come to mind are horror films. Uh, there's a Canadian, I think it's a Canadian film. It's also, I think there's also some Americans who've worked on it as well. It's called Aberration. It's from uh, the late 90s, and I thought that was quite good. Uh, Moontrap is another solid one. So there, there's there's quite a few out there, and, and even some more recent ones as well that came out in home video that were uh, films that were made overseas but then were released in the U.S. on home video and streaming, like Housebound, um, which I thought was a, a pretty solid film i like that yeah so mike's a movie guy if you can't tell at this point that's i i i go to him for his wealth his data bank uh almost like human computer like recollection of, of but if things. you want a feature film that's based on alcatraz and the Al alcatraz escape uh, check out escape from alcatraz which is uh a film that's based on this story starring clint eastwood yeah i want to say i see i've seen that one did they shoot that one on alcatraz as well i think they might have i'm not 100% sure, though, because I haven't seen that film in a long time. Well, this Unsolved mystery segment, I can say for sure they did shoot on Alcatraz, and it really yes. gives, it really paints the exact picture of how this escape happened. 
you know, the 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 human will to get out of a a bad situation. And you know, a lot of these guys like Frank Morris and uh, the the people who escaped, they weren't like murderers. They were just like bank robbers and stuff like that. So if at least on my end, I I kind of am rooting for them to a certain extent. Not that I think it's good to rob banks, but I don't know. There's just something about uh, the whole escaping from this uh, oppressive environment that that appeals to the uh, human. Well, the- how they did it is what really makes this segment stand out from a lot of the other escape segments that we've seen on the show. Uh, th- this was very creative, very courageous, something that took a lot of planning and didn't happen overnight. Yeah. So, and, yeah. Um, Alcatraz was among the most dreaded prisons in America, a fortress perched on a rocky island in San Francisco Bay. The ice cold, treacherous water of the bay was the best guarantee that nobody would successfully escape. And nobody did until June 11th, 1962. That night, three men broke out of their cell house and vanished into the bay in a homemade raft. Frank Morris, the brilliant mastermind of the escape, as well as John Anglin and his brother Clarence, were never seen again. Authorities later discovered pieces of the raft. It had broken up at sea. The three convicts appeared to have swum for it. Did they make it? The debate continues. Philip Bergen, captain of the guards at Alcatraz from 1946 to 1955, believes survival was impossible. Quoting him here, he says, If they went into the water, they were drowned within 30 minutes. They succumbed to hypothermia and drowned. Okay, I guess that guy's related to uh, the Scientology guy. Oh, I've already forgotten his name. L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I th- all 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 old timey people talk like that. You know, uh, it's it's just a fact of of life. You know, don't try to look it up or or confirm or de- you know or denounce what I'm saying. Just accept it as absolute truth. <laughs> That's the easiest way to listen to this podcast. <laughs> but Patrick Mahoney, who ran the launch that traveled... Mahoney! <laughs> is that is that a movie reference, Mike? Police Academy. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, I saw that one when I was like six years old, probably. <laughs> anyway, this Patrick Mahoney character who ran the launch that traveled between Alcatraz and the mainland, uh, he has some doubts. Quoting him here, I felt that they didn't make it, but I thought we'd find a body. We didn't find a body. In the many years that have passed since that June night in 1962, no one has reported seeing Frank Morris, John Anglin, or, Car- or Clarence Anglin. They may have beaten the odds and survived their escape from Alcatraz. Don Denevy, a professor at Merritt College in Oakland, co-wrote a manuscript about the escape with Clarence Carnes, an Alcatraz inmate. Carnes arrived on the rock when he was just 18 years old and spent close to 20 years there. He was a close confidant of the three convicts who escaped. Denevy put it in this way. Quote, Carnes was the most important inmate on Alcatraz. He had gained the respect of virtually all the other inmates because he knew how to keep his mouth shut. He was, in a sense, the godfather of Alcatraz. I love that. I love that term. It's great. Yeah, it really is. And I really like the actor that they chose to portray Carnes in the reenactment as well. Yeah, he was good, too. He looked like a computer nerd, but like, you know, a computer nerd that might shove a shiv in your neck if you cross him. <laughs> So Carnes told Denevi that the plot to escape began with an inmate named Alan West, who was assigned to paint the top tier and ceiling of the cell block. While working there, West discovered that with some hard work, he could probably get to the prison roof through the ceiling ventilation shaft. 
See, the ventilation duct was constructed with crossbars inside. It was impossible to cut the bars or to squeeze past them. But Wes saw that if he cut the entire duct from its surrounding support and shoved the whole thing out, he could easily get to the roof. Genius. West enlisted the help of John and Clarence Anglin, both convicted bank robbers who had a history of escapes from other institutions. According to Denevi, the Anglin brothers had some other useful skills. Quoting Denevi here, the Anglins were expert craftsmen, raftsmen I should say, not craftsmen, whatever. I'm not a strong reader. The Anglins were expert raftsmen because they've grown up in the Florida swamps. They knew how to construct rafts. They knew how to negotiate currents. And they were expert swimmers as well. Are you an expert raftsman? Uh, you know, even though I've grown, grown up in the Florida swamps, Mike, I could say uh, I am not an expert raftsman. Uh, so this is, um, I don't know what kind of ist or ism this would be, but I, I'm offended. I am personally offended. Uh, don't assume that all Floridians are expert raftsmen. That's um, statist. Uh, sorry, I just have to get with the times of getting, uh, of, of taking outrage with everything. The, the cult of outrage. Right. You have to join the cult of outrage. Absolutely. Hey, man, anything, anything, any movement I can jump on board with and, and be offended, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that opportunity. <laughs> so anyway, the uh, central figure in the plot was an inmate named Frank Morris. The former captain of the guards at Alcatraz, Philip Bergen, described him with some respect. He was the thinker. Anything connected with this escape that had any real brains behind it can be credited to Morris. Carnes had told Morris about a utility corridor that ran the length and the height of the cell block. Heating and water pipes inside the corridor formed a makeshift ladder to the ventilation shaft. Morris believed that he and the others could dig through their cell walls to this hidden corridor during music hour. Bergen recalls this part of the daily routine on Alcatraz and explains how the escapees exploited it. In the early part of the evening, there was what they called a music hour and anybody who had a string instrument could play. When that music is playing, it has an effect of deafening the officer who's making his inspections. The inmates that were digging were, uh, just digging away. That's some pretty loud music. Were they playing, like, electric guitars and drums and shit? I mean... I heard uh, from a source that they were actually all trying to remake um, Back in Black by ACDC. <laughs> they they were trying to do like a like a fifty man uh, guitar version of like all the songs in the album. Um, no, they were trying to do a rendition of God, uh, not God. Um, God damn it, fuck! Of that song that they did where they fired the cannons. Oh, for those about to rock. Yeah, for those about to rock, we salute you. Now, this is one thing, like, when it gets to parts like this on any segment that talks about prison, I get a little confused. Because it's like, on the one hand, Alcatraz is this, like, really strict, crazy, only the worst of the worst go there. Well, what's funny is, speaking of that, I love how Robert Stack describes that. He's like, this is where troublemakers, the, the troublemakers were sent to Alcatraz. The worst troublemakers were sent to Alcatraz. I find... <laughs> I find that funny because I'm just like troublemakers like that doesn't sound like that's serious enough you know, for, for inmates that were sent to Alcatraz. Yeah, like, like a troublemaker is somebody who like steals an old lady's blueberry pie off her windowsill. That, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, exactly. That's a troublemaker. Um, 
Yeah, like we're gonna send Garfield the cat to Alcatraz. I, I think Al Capone <laughs> was a little bit more hardcore than a troublemaker, which you know he was. He was an Alcatraz, so yeah. But what is interesting also is that they had these uh, intriguing routines. The guards at Alcatraz. Uh, there's one where they would go in and just do random checks of all these different people in the cells. Like just not even give them a heads up, just randomly check them. Well, yeah, you know, that that was part of the whole Alcatraz package. But what, see, what I find crazy is like it's that strict, but they still give these people fucking stringed instruments. Yeah. I mean, if you give me a guitar and throw me in jail, jail is all of a sudden not nearly as bad. And that's why, like, I'm like in, in between on the death penalty because, like, some people are like, no, just have them spend the rest of their life in prison. These people who, like, rape, like, a bunch of people and murder them and shit, they shouldn't be allowed to be in prison and, and possibly be able to play guitar and enjoy life. You know what I mean? Like, that's where I'm, like, kind of iffy on that. Because it's like, well, damn, if they're getting guitars in prison, which, by the way, how easy... Well, they might not might not get those because of their reputation, but um, I mean, I really don't know what... The whole thing is when it comes to certain convicts and how they're able to get certain privileges. But I think you definitely have to be a model uh, prisoner to be able to have anything like that. I mean, judging I by the they, music hour, you know, that they're talking about where everybody seemed to have a string instrument. I, I, guess, I guess they gave it to them back then because, honestly, they were not allowed outside. So unlike uh, prisons now, unless you're a prisoner who's super hardcore and is always in solitary confinement. In Alcatraz, there there wasn't really time or, you know, people went outside for, you know, maybe a little bit to, like, maybe play a game of baseball, but nothing really that uh, substantial. And so they were inside uh, solitary confinement for the majority of their time there. So I guess they were trying to do that maybe to make it so things would be less chaotic for the people who are working there because imagine this like if you have these like hardened criminals and they're in solitary confinement all the time and they're not really given the option to do a lot they could really go haywire and become even more of a problem for the police and and for the uh what's the right word like the people who the the guard the guards who are working there well, I'm just thinking, like... That's my theory. Like, how easy would it be to take one of those guitar strings and turn it into, like, a you know, a ligature that you could just strangle someone with? Well, maybe they're not giving them guitar strings. So well, maybe how are they we making noise with it, Mike? <laughs> they, could be, they could be singing uh, using wind instruments. No, they said anyone with a stringed instrument could play their oh, instrument. Okay. Yeah, right. they are giving right. them guitars with guitar strings. <laughs> Unless they're using what their if... pubic hairs as strings somehow, then they, they had guitar strings. <laughs> but they probably had other instruments too, like harmonicas. And Mike, so, you're just being so a goddamn cool. contrarian at this point. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> it was a bad idea. But at the same time, it's like it's like... That, you know, I shit, I love playing guitar. I get it. I get why they do it. They did it. So. I mean, I get it, but at the same time, it's like, you can already see kind of the flawed thinking in some aspects of, of Alcatraz here. For a prison that was supposed to be this model of, uh, you know, the last the last stop in the uh, social justice system. Well, not social justice, the criminal justice system. <laughs> we, need a, we need a social justice penitentiary for some of these crazy fucks out here, I think. <laughs> Let's call the social justice system. 
reopen Alcatraz and throw those people in there. I think the last call for the social justice the uh, system would be a Tumblr. I think that would be the last. Send them to The Rock. Yeah. So anyway, he told him about this uh, this security, this corridor that, you know, ran the length of uh, all the cell blocks. And um, so they started digging away during music hour. Um, the Anglins, West, and Morris each carved a hole in the rear wall of their respective cells. West also used that time to craft false ventilation fronts to hide their work. I mean, every step along the way of this uh, reenactment is just not only appealing visually, but it's so fascinating because the guy literally makes a false ventilation sh like looking front um, out of like a piece of like what well, almost looks like a plaster from the wall, like a square mm -hmm. square shaped solid chunk of plaster. He like pokes holes in it to replicate a vent shaft and everything or not shaft, but a vent cover. And um, yeah, the and, and another uh bonus uh part of this segment is you got robert stack in his trench coat a blue trench coat this time around and he's actually showing you certain items that the prisoners uh, used and he's in alcatraz and so that just adds a whole uh certain mystique to everything that isn't there with some of the other segments because they're not actually shooting it on location they're shooting it somewhere else yeah usually they just like shoved robert stack in a church in like burbank or los angeles <laughs> and and he filmed everything remotely but this time they're like no stack sorry man gotta earn that paycheck you gotta gotta ride the boat over to uh, i bet he was excited to do it i bet robert stack yeah. was like really stoked to to do i bet that was like ex well because he was he was in the untouchables and you know that tv show he played uh elliot ness so right so the convicts devised another brilliant ploy so they wouldn't be missed during head counts now this is probably one of the most genius things that, that yeah, they came up with for sure don eberly who headed the fbi investigation to escape described the ingenious deception they decided that they would have to make dummy heads to be in their bunks in case one of them was not in there when the guard would go by. This was at a time when the lights were turned low and it would be difficult to recognize other than a face that was in the bed. Inmate Leon Whitey Thompson was one of the many prisoners who helped the escapees. Now, according to old Whitey here, he goes, Morse asked me about how you mix flesh tone because you see, I'm an artist. I did a lot of oil painting on Alcatraz. I begin to wonder, why is he so interested in flesh tone? And then I begin to put it all together because uh, they needed flesh tone color for the dummy heads. I would love to see some of uh, Leon Whitey Thompson's oil paintings he did from Alcatraz. That would be interesting. <laughs> um, the dummies were made from soap, concrete powder, and stolen paint. One of the Anglins worked in the barber shop and swiped some hair to paste on the dummy's head for an extra touch of realism. And they actually show this head. Uh, yeah. Robert Stack presents it. It's, it's almost in like a uh, like a box that you put a cake in or something. He like lifts it up <laughs> and it shows the actual head that was used in the Alcatraz escape. And it, it looks. Um, I mean, it's pretty much how the uh, the guard described it or whatever. It, it's it's like outside of just seeing that there was a face there or something that resembled a head. You know, that that's pretty much all you were going on when you did the head counts. And these guards did these head counts night after night after night. So you don't expect that there's going to be the possibility of a fake dummy head in the bed. You're just looking to see hair in, in a face, and you're regardless of how fake it might look. So um, 
For eight months, Morris and the Anglin brothers left their cells at night to drill out the ventilation shaft and collect the items they needed for their escape. Clarence Carnes, who saw a lot during his 18 years on the rock, was impressed by their effort. In his manuscript, Clarence Carnes wrote, quote, Many times through the years, I had met men who had tried to escape, but their flaw had been too little planning and being too hasty. They had not been thorough in their thinking, and that's what defeated them, but not this time. For the guards on patrol during the spring of 1962, the countdowns, the routines, the boredom were no different than any other time, but many inmates knew differently. During the days, right under the gaze of their keepers, they helped the four escapees in their preparations. One of their most important jobs was secretly passing them raincoats. Working in their cells at night, the four prisoners used the raincoats to make life preservers, which they then stashed in the escape tunnels. In a secret workspace hidden by blankets, the Anglins and Morris took turns assembling a raft, also out of pilfered raincoats. So they had actually, from painting up on the uh, by the roof on the um, like third floor or whatever it was one of the guys had started to kick paint chips from where he was painting and it was starting to like bug the other in inmates so yet again another misstep in the guards or in the warden's foresight here they actually allowed the guy painting up on the third floor to hang blankets to keep the paint chips from falling. And this yeah. this made a basically a workshop for the inmate to work on all of this contraband stuff that was going to be needed to escape. Which and they show that in the reenactment. They show basically this workspace, this makeshift workspace that the security guard they just knew nothing about. It's like how how did they get away with that? It's so crazy. It's so Well, think about it. They're not the guards are not thinking about that kind of stuff because nobody has successfully escaped from Alcatraz. And they're thinking that nobody's gonna try to escape from Alcatraz because of the multiple unsuccessful escape attempts. They got cocky. Which is exactly, which is why uh I do believe that there is a there is a possibility that these three did escape. Um, and, uh, it's hard to say that they didn't because there really isn't any concrete proof to say that they did not escape. And it's one of those things where you look at it even more deeply and you see things like, well, they didn't have very good security on the outside of, of Alcatraz. Right. So it makes it even easier to escape. So the time to escape finally arrived. Quietly, the prisoners left their cells for the last time. Immediately, they encountered their first problem. Alan West was unable to slip through the hole in his cell wall. The others were unwilling to wait. <laughs> Alan West, the original instigator oh. of the plan, was left behind. Man, <laughs> that had to suck. Yeah, it was literally like if you if you could have just punched out the hole the size of the of your fist that's all the room he would have needed to to have squeezed out but they did yeah alan west had never tried to escape out of his hole in his cell before and what they hadn't encountered or what they hadn't anticipated was this reinforced piece of masonry uh this the, this bar that was basically running right through um the where his hole was that kept him from squeezing out 
So yeah, the I mean, Jesus, how frustrating is that? They're ready to leave. They're ready to go. And you can't, I mean, that would be enough to drive someone mad, I would think. Yeah, especially if you're the one that was the instigator, the guy who came up with this plan in the first place, the guy who wanted to escape the most. Right. And the other guys, you know, they can't wait for him. So it's like, fuck it, we got to go. Tonight's the night. Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers safely slipped through their cells into the utility corridor. There, they climbed up the heating pipes to the ceiling. They popped out the ventilation ducts they'd cut from the ceiling during the past eight months, and they made their way to the roof. I mean, how awesome is this? This is fucking awesome. Like, this is such a cool story. Like, this actually happened. This is not a movie. Well, that's the reason why a lot of people consider it one of the greatest mysteries ever. Yeah. All human ingenuity, too. There's no, no uh, extraterrestrial or anything like that. This is all something that human... There's no aliens. Aliens. <laughs> so, still undetected, they ran across the roof and climbed down outside the prison and headed toward the water. Though Alcatraz had been this bastion of, you know, security and lockdown inside the prison, security outside the prison was actually rather weak. One of the many challenges the escapees faced was how to inflate their huge raft. Frank Morris had come up with one of the most ingenious ideas of the whole operation. He had received a small accordion known as a concertina, for use during the daily music hour. So I guess they had some uh, Lumineers, Mumford & Sons vibes going on with the uh, concertina going on with the guitar. <laughs> or Weird Al with the accordion. <laughs> yeah, although I don't think there was any real good songs to parody at that point in the uh, in that time period. I mean, I guess you could, but it wouldn't be as... You just play some normal polka or do the doo-wop thing. <laughs> so Don Eberly, the FBI investigator, described how the instrument was used during the escape. They had taken the keys out of the concertina, and therefore you could put your hand on one strap of the concertina and push it up and down, and it would operate just like bellows. So it was basically like a, an inflator. It inflated the raft. Ever so slowly, the raft began to fill. When it was ready, the three men pushed it into the water at the edge of Alcatraz and climbed on. Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin had made it off the rock. Inside the prison, the dummy heads the prisoners had left behind in their cells fooled any guards that happened to look in. When the breakout was finally discovered, it triggered an extensive search, one of the largest manhunts ever. Patrick Mahoney, a former guard at Alcatraz, was among those who took part in the search. Quoting him here, he says, We were ordered to go out on the bay and, of course, start looking around the island. And then over at Angel Island, scanning the beaches to see if anything that pertained to them might have washed up. It became evident that we weren't going to find them. Whether they had made it or not, no one knew for sure. Now, the, the thing that I'm thinking is like, yes, they they put a lot of thought into all this and they had their raincoat uh, raft and all that. But my, my whole thing is like, you're making a raft out of raincoats. I mean, the, the, sewing, that, the sewing job that you'd have to do to stitch all these raincoats together to make a watertight seal would have to be just incredible. Yeah, which is why I can buy some people feeling that they might not have made it because there's so many different factors that have to go into them successfully making this escape and coming out of it alive. And that's one that is pretty sketchy. Yeah, and then, I to... mean, not even to take into consideration the fact that the, there was three men on this raincoat raft. Yeah. I mean, let's say these men were average height and weight. 
well, probably a little bit more like scant than what a normal person would be at that time because they had to lose weight to fit through the hole and all that. So let's say, let's say they were like five nine and weighed like a hundred and thirty pounds each. That's still almost four hundred pounds on this raft made out of fucking raincoats that was inflated <laughs> with a concertina, not a professional like air pump or anything that that could ensure that this thing was really inflated to the max i mean geez like that alone would would deter me like there's no way well yeah also i mean it could just fall apart as soon as it hits the strongest wave or something or it hits a rock or some other thing uh that's in the in the ocean and uh, and how are you gonna control it uh just using a paddle like i think they had like one paddle or something yeah, yeah, something like that. Or, or, or like as soon as the three men jump in it, it just like sinks because it's not it's not buoyant enough to support almost four hundred pounds. You know, I mean, yeah, if it was like one guy, yeah, that'd be more right. believable. Yeah, one guy I could possibly believe, but three, no way, no way. But I mean, we don't really have any proof that 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 they did not make it. But I mean, there's there's some things that are out there that. Leads me to believe that at least one guy didn't make it, for sure. So, during the first 24 hours, the search teams came up empty-handed. Then they began to find remnants of the escapee's raft. In addition, a homemade oar was discovered floating between Alcatraz and Angel Island. This paddle matched one that the convicts had left behind in the cell block. Dope! Why'd you leave one behind, you dummy? Two days after the breakout, a rubber wrapped packet was also discovered floating near angel island it contained an address book 80 family photographs and a money order that belonged to one of the escapees some such as fbi investigator don eberly began to doubt that the escapees had survived probably the earliest they could have gotten into the water would be 10:30. the outgoing tide started that night at 10 o'clock and that outgoing tide is very strong and i firmly believe that they were taken by the currents into the pacific ocean in addition, a Norwegian ship spotted a body floating 20 miles past the Golden Gate Bridge on the day of the escape. Though unable to retrieve it, their description of it matched that of Frank Morris. That's silly. That is a silly thing to say that the, the, the description of a floating body 20 miles past the Golden Gate Bridge <laughs> matched that of this prisoner that escaped. Yeah, yeah, but maybe it did. Maybe it had distinctive... Oh, what, like, like uh, arms and legs and a head? <laughs> like every body... <laughs> <laughs> like that's so stupid did you go up to i mean you know it's like it's almost like kind of they're believing what they want to believe maybe, at that point maybe they had binoculars mike you just got to be a little contrarian in this whole time don't you well yeah i mean come on i mean that's that's kind of my job mike you're supposed to agree uh, with everything i say <laughs> that's what i pay you so for. yeah maybe they had binoculars and maybe they actually were able to see something like he was wearing a homemade uh handcrafted in a prison life jacket made out of raincoats maybe i can see you right now with binoculars mike how does that make you feel weird as it should anyway <laughs> um there is also some compelling evidence to suggest that at least one of the men survived the day after the escape a man claiming to be john anglin called a san francisco law firm known to represent alcatraz inmates eugenia mcgowan I was almost named Eugenia, was an attorney at the law firm. She took the call. And he said, I'm John Anglin, and I want you to contact the U.S. Marshal's office. I said, 
well, I'm not going to do that unless I know why. And he said, do you know who I am? And I said, no. He said, read the newspaper. And he hung up. Alcatraz inmate Clarence Carnes claimed that a few weeks after the break, he received a postcard from the ex escapees. In it, they gave the prearranged code words that confirmed their escape. The card read, gone fishing. Carnes believed that Morris and the Anglin brothers had help from the outside, arranged by a convict on the inside. He claimed that Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson... <laughs> I don't know if I'd want my nickname to be Bumpy. I don't... Yeah, I, where did that come from? I want to know the story behind that nickname. If you get the nickname Bumpy, uh, that that probably means you need to go see a doctor about... So you need some you need some kind of topical creams there. Although I definitely don't want to... I definitely wouldn't want to run across this guy at this time period and make fun of him because no. you, he's the underworld king of Harlem. He was known as the, so. he was known as the Black Al Capone. Uh, he he yeah. had apparently arranged for a boat to pick up the escapees. Now, that would make sense. If that... If, if the bodies were never found, but all their shit was found, it would make sense that at some point a boat was to meet up with them. Yeah, yeah, because that that makes more sense than uh, one of the theories that one of the guards had, where he's like, "Oh, they would have had to rob somebody or or steal something," and we don't have any accounts of that happening. And I'm like, "Did you really? Were you really that good at keeping a, a track of crimes back? Th I mean, some stuff. Not every crime is reported because sometimes there's nobody. There isn't any witnesses. That's true. I didn't even think <laughs> about nobody, that." There's nobody to actually say, hey, copper, they stole my car. Hey, copper, they robbed me. No, because that person is dead. Right. <laughs> so um, also, in this time period, there really wasn't anything in terms of forensics. So that that was not in play. And you know, security cameras or anything. There was arrogance, so probably arrogance up yeah. and down this whole thing. You know, I mean, on on the law enforcement part, you know, they just arrogant oh, sure. in, in every way. The people were interviewed. It just seems like they're like nobody escaped. Come on, yeah, it didn't happen. Th it's just a rumor. That's one thing that bothered no me. Way it was possible. Yeah, that's one thing that bothered me about this segment. The 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 old timey guards that they interviewed, they just would not give it up for these guys. They they were still sticking to like, yeah, well, yeah, they didn't escape under my watch. Damn it, I. You know, I mean, I guess they escaped, but they didn't survive. It's like, come on, guys. You know, I know you're law enforcement, but but give it up to them. It's kind of badass what they did, you know, uh, at least a little bit. Yeah. And also, they, you don't have any proof that they didn't escape. I mean, you have like these, that whole thing with the guy, the people on the Norwegian ship who saw a body that might have matched the description. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I know I did the contrarian thing there, but it, that is a pretty weak piece of evidence. That really is. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other things, oh, they found these like a piece of the raft and they found an oar. Well, if they got picked up by this boat, then they would have left that behind. So according to Carnes, the boat then took the convicts to Pier 13 in San Francisco's Hunter's Point District. Philip Bergen, the former Alcatraz captain of guards, doubts the story. My feeling is that's just something that Carnes dreamed up and that there is not the slightest possibility there's any truth to that. How do you know, dude? That's what I want to know. So, dude. 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 Bro. Bro, bro ham. Bro chacho. <laughs> uh, Alan West was interrogated repeatedly about Bumpy Johnson and how he got so bumpy and who gave him that bumpiness. 
Uh, no, none of those things happened. Uh, he, he was also <laughs> pressed to reveal any other contacts who might have helped the convicts. He denied that any existed. Fellow Alcatraz inmate Leon Whitey Thompson put it this way. West wouldn't have copped out. West was people. He was solid people. To this day, I don't believe he ever told him nothing. Which is like, just, that's perfect prison speak right there, you know? Yeah. Um, apparently when you're a good shit, you know, you become multiple people. Yeah, you, you're good people. I don't know why you multiply when you become good, but to some <laughs> older people, my dad says that shit. He'd be like, oh yeah, Larry, them's good people. Uh, you know, huh? Go figure. <laughs> Larry the Cable Guy? No, no, no. We're not, we're not, we're not that redneck to believe that Larry the Cable Guy character actually exists. <laughs> Which a lot of people do. A lot of people like legitimately believe like he's some redneck who wears flannel all the time. I'm so glad he went away. That that trend of him being like this huge stand up comic guy was. Remember he was always he was on uh, advertisements. Yeah, too? He, well that's when his that's for heartburn ads. That's when his career <laughs> took a nosedive when he started doing Prilosec commercials every two days. Yeah, that's 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 called um, you don't want to work anymore and you want a paycheck. So fuck the art. I just I'm just trying to get paid anyway. Well, really, did he have art? Was he really doing art to begin? He's with? If you listen to some of those Larry the Cable Guy stand up <laughs> specials, some of them are pretty fucking funny. They're dumb. Yeah, as, they they're are. dumb as hell. But I, I do laugh. But out of out of out of uh, the blue collar comedy guys, I would say he's one of my least favorite. I mean, Ron White is better. I'd, I'd give it to Bill Engvall and even Jeff Foxworthy over Larry the Cable. I'd guy. say Bill Engvall was the weakest of the four. Um, Ron White was, is the most had the most crossover uh, yeah. success. Um, but he didn't do that many stand-up specials. Well, dude, he's old. He was old when he made it. Yeah. When he made it big, he was old, and now he's even older You know than he was at his uh, peak. Um uh-huh. Foxworthy's a, co- a comedy legend. I mean, he you know, you, you got to give it up to him. He, he Unfortunately, he's never mentioned along with the likes of Seinfeld and Carlin and all that. But he, I mean, Jeff Foxworthy catered to a sector of the stand-up comedian, uh, stand-up comedian uh, audience that no one was catering to. You know, the yeah. more rednecky, blue-collar, whatever. You know, like, he, he really, like, cornered that market for a long time. Anyway... <laughs> I definitely don't think that any of the blue collar comedy guys would would have been able to escape from Alcatraz. No, I don't either. Um, <laughs> the stories told by prisoners at Alcatraz did not impress the FBI investigators like Philip Bergen. Of, of course, of course it didn't. Of course yeah. not. He still believes that the men have drowned within minutes of hitting the water. And this quoting him here. Now, of course, we're never cocksure enough to say, well, we know they're dead, but we're pretty sure that they are dead. Because there was no trace of them whatsoever. However, they're still on the missing list and not on the dead list. This is totally a contradic- contradictory statement. Now, of course, we are never co- we never are cocksure enough to say, "Well, we know they're dead," but we're pretty sure that they're dead. Well, they're just leaving that that ninety nine point nine percent. They're leaving that point one percent chance, you know, so they don't look like dummies if they're ever proven wrong. Well, I said we were pretty sure. We didn't say we were a hundred percent sure. <laughs> yeah. They're doing that whole legal jargon of I said, yeah. you know, Lysol says Lysol's uh, disinfectant spray says it kills ninety nine point nine percent of germs. So if you get, uh, you know, typhoid fever and die because um you sprayed down your counter and you thought it was clean but it turns out it wasn't 
it's not our fault because we said 99.9%, so it was the 0.1% that killed you. <laughs> so, even though Alcatraz ceased prison operations many years ago, the infamous escape of June 1962 continues to puzzle investigators. In fact, over the years, thousands of leads have been investigated, but to no avail. Will this legendary case ever be solved? For now, the arrest warrants for the three fugitives still remain active, and the search for answers goes on. And Alcatraz, it has an interesting story behind why it closed. It wasn't because of this escape attempt or this escape. It was because of the fact that it was incredibly hard to maintain. It was a money pit, a gigantic money pit. And as uh, the years went on, it got further and further behind the times. And so it was hard for uh, the state of California to continue to maintain it and let alone prevent it from uh, falling apart or provide prisoners with adequate uh, help and things like that. And eventually it shut down and it's a tourist attraction to this day. And according to, you know, some people also think it might be haunted. So, oh, I'm sure it is. Uh, that's another thing. Yeah, I mean, just like the logistical nightmares of Alcatraz alone, you know, the fact that, uh, you you know, just to get supplies to the island, you're having yeah. to send a boat. You know, you can't just drive through the gates of the prison like you can with any other prison. You have to do all these special provisions just to get people to and fro. And, you know, the cost of all that logistically was probably a pain in the ass as well. So, um... I wanted to point out some differences from the original special that aired on uh, on the original airing of this compared to what was on the box set. When you watched the Alcatraz on uh, Amazon, Mike, was it the entire special? I think it is, but um, I didn't I didn't watch that all the way through. I just kind of flipped through it to see what the differences were uh, between that and the VHS rip and the segment on the DVD box set. The segment on Strange on the Strange Legend set is just the Alcatraz part, um, with the reenactments and Robert Stack inside of the prison talking about what happened. But in the VHS rip, and I think the Amazon one is pretty close. It ha it's set up in this sort of like kind of history lesson of Alcatraz, mixed in with other cases of prison escapes yeah they talk about al capone a lot at the beginning um and they they yeah. actually mentioned something i thought was pretty fascinating they talked about how al capone had syphilis and the guards were, were giving him medication for it but al capone didn't believe the guards when they said that he had syphilis and so he would have other inmates take his medication for him and over time the disease got worse and, and syphilis even though it's a sexually transmitted disease um, it, it actually is one of the, uh, one of the, yeah, it can be contagious. Well, it's one of the few STDs that can actually make its way to your brain. And and yeah. that's what happened. It eventually got to his brain and it, uh, he started getting dementia from that. Uh, he started, you know, uh, he started acting different. He would put his clothes on backwards and all this other kind of stuff. And eventually it killed him. He died of syphilis. That is interesting. Yeah. That's not really... The type of death you think that Al Capone would have ended up having, and just thinking Al Capone, thinking of Al Capone in a, such a vulnerable situation, uh, going through dementia is definitely an intriguing prospect. Well, I mean, it's like another thing I think of too is like 
Hey, Al, uh, how'd you get that syphilis there, buddy? Were you, you getting, a little, <laughs> getting a little lonely on the rock? Did did something else get rock hard that uh, made you want to... Uh... <laughs> he might have had it before he even uh, got sent to prison. That's true. We're talking about prison sex, people, if anybody's curious as to what I'm alluding to. Thing, the jailhouse rock. Hashtag things Josh doesn't need to say because everybody understood but had to say anyway so little kids can't listen to the podcast. End hashtag. <laughs> uh, then they also, on the um, the special for Alcatraz, they also talked about Robert Stroud, a.k.a. Birdman, and how he uh-huh. uh, was obsessed with birds and how he studied birds while in the in his time at Alcatraz. Oh, Actually, I believe it was at more at Leavenworth, but when he was transferred to Alcatraz... They didn't actually let him have birds in his cell, um, but they still, when a book was written about him, it was called The Birdman of Alcatraz. Actually, a movie was made about him as well, and they portrayed him in this almost like a victim uh, light, you know. I I think Escape from Alcatraz had The Birdman in it, too, I think. I'm not sure, though. I thought it was fascinating. He would study, like, bird diseases, and he wrote two books on birds. I mean, it's just like the... Yeah, it's interesting, but what does this have to do with an unsolved mystery? Like, that's the kind of thing I felt while watching this, uh, the longer version of the Alcatraz episode. It's like, okay, all right. What does this really have to do with the show? There's nothing unsolved about the Birdman of Alcatraz. I don't know. I I, I think there's nothing unsolved about Al Capone. It was interesting. It's just one of those things where it didn't really fit within the context of the show. That's the same thing with the having the lady swim the channel or whatever, swim across or try to attempt do an attempt to swim to shore. That's stuff that really didn't fit the series. And you really never saw them do something like that ever again. And for good reason, because it doesn't really... It's it's like when they try to have Virginia Madsen co-host uh, the show when the ratings were low. I don't know. I, I or didn't, giving Keely Shea Smith more, uh, you know, cases to... Cover. I never minded stuff like that, honestly. Like like when they had um, that lost flight um, that, that, was, that disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle... And they had the scene where they had the divers and, and like Unsolved Mysteries was live on the scene when... Well, that was cool. That's different because they're looking for something that was legitimately an Unsolved Mystery. And like and they're, and they're actually divers and things like that. It's not like, here we are live and we're watching this swimmer try to swim across the ocean. And we'll see if she succeeds. Uh, at the next commercial break, after the next commercial break, that was a trope of the '90s. Like at the time, like those shows, like they always, ha- they it seemed like, and I can't think of any great examples off the top of my head. This is like something from Ripley's Believe It or right, Not. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's like that's is. the kind of that's like that's the kind of shows I think of where they did they kind of tried to do stuff like that. And I don't know, it it didn't bother me personally. Unsolved Mysteries is a documentary style show, so when they give you information about Robert Stroud, the Birdman, and stuff like I like hearing about that. But when they do these little goofy, you know, we're going to try to recreate this, you know, that's a ratings grab. That's all that is, you know. Yeah, for that sure. That was probably yeah. in the bumper for the for that, you know, tonight yeah. on Unsolved Mysteries, you know, we try to swim the length of uh, Alcatraz to Angel Island. I think that actually is in the bumper. I'm sure. That's why they do. That's why they have shit like that's all a ratings thing. And and if you notice, um, and I'm, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in depth in a second, when they had um, the swimmer David Horning when he who the guy who swam from Alcatraz to the shore um they they had all these news crews and shit uh, as soon as he got out of the water they threw a pair of headphones on him and all these mics up to him 
And this guy just got out of the freezing cold water and they're like, so, you know, like, what, wh how was it out there? You know, so, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was a, you know, they don't have news teams on, on site whenever Unsolved Mysteries is trying to figure out, yeah. you know. Well, this also didn't make any sense because it wasn't at the same time. This is during the day. So it was, it wasn't at 1030 at night or 10 o'clock you know, with the tide coming in and they couldn't have done that because that would be dangerous and probably the swimmer would not have been able to make the journey to the shore in that kind of condition. So it didn't really even accurately show the condition. Well, they were so actually I, I, saying, it, so what we're talking about here is is after the Alcatraz meat and potatoes, um, they, they actually have, they have rafters and they have this news anchor named, I think her name was uh, Diane, and uh, they yeah. had a swimmer named Dave Horning, and uh, he he's he's been yeah I got I got Diane and Dave mixed up. My bad. <laughs> oh okay yeah oh yeah you were saying the woman swimmer yeah, yeah no it was it was a it was a guy um the anyway this Dave guy he's a he's a triathlete and he's he's a really good swimmer and he's basically talking about what happens to the body when you swim in the cold ass water and. Um, he was commenting about, you know, the convicts, like uh, if they would be able to do it, not being triathlete swimmers. And um, uh -huh. I didn't know this either. And see, this is another interesting tidbit that you got from that extra segment. Apparently, the uh, inmates weren't even allowed to take cold showers in Alcatraz because they didn't want the convicts getting acclimated to the cold water. Okay. So that, that that is an interesting bit of trivia. So that's something that Diane was saying when she was talking to Dave and... Um, so what they were basically doing was they were they had this Dave Horning guy who was suited up in just a rubber swim cap and some rubber swimming underwear. And let me just tell you, ladies, Dave is packing some heat in them swim trunks. Uh, his name should have been Dave the Bulge Horning because, I mean, that guy was smuggling some cucumbers down there. But th he definitely lived up to the horny in in his name well it's horning but sure you could you could horny horning <laughs> oh my god <laughs> but so anyway they had this this swimmer and then they had these three guys who had made a raft and they did not make it out of raincoats it looked like just kind of a more normal ish raft probably made maybe in the same way the raincoat raft was originally made so they kind of basically it wasn't a race but they were trying to see like who would make it to shore first yeah. And um, the rafters had an extremely difficult time because yes. all three of them were on the raft and they were just trying to flail their limbs and paddle the best they could. Meanwhile, naked Dave Horning was uh, just pumping away. And um, it's pretty fascinating seeing them. They were all on Alcatraz. You know, they were on The Rock, the infamous Alcatraz, yeah. during the day. Um and they're talking about Dave's powerful strokes, and uh, <laughs> they were talking about the convicts and how they grew up in, in. Though they grew up in Florida, they may not have swam in years, and they wouldn't be stroking. <laughs> well, the theory, the theory is not that they swam to shore anyway. The theory is that they were picked up by a boat. Well, that's so, one of the theories. There are many theories. That's one of the. So theories, they were testing out. I mean, you know that that's the most believable theory is the boat thing, not them swimming across to shore. And while the tide is rolling in or rolling out, that's not even that. That's probably not even something that is very likely at all. But, in the middle of the night, zero visibility. Well, they were actually addressing that too. They were saying that, hey, is it is it make a huge difference that we're doing this during the daytime? 
And they're saying, well, you know, you, there's more visibility of the currents and the, uh, I think yeah. they used some other uh, terminology, like eddies, I think they there's, said. There's a big difference. <laughs> but they said that was about it, though. They said it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been that they would have made that much an effect on them actually being but it was at the time when the tide was rolling out that's the big difference there the tide wasn't rolling out when they were doing the experiment i'm not sure uh i'd have to go back and watch i think they were trying to pretty much replicate it exactly but anyway uh my point i'm trying to make is dave had some hard stroking that he was doing and he was he was able to make it to shore he did it he did it in about in about over an hour he's, he's a triathlete Right, which the point they're making is these men were not, and they were doing the raft method. The rafters, yeah, I, I don't, I don't buy that they ever swam to shore anyway. Like if they, if they ended up out of the raft, they would, they, they drowned. Yeah, we just haven't found their especially body wearing yet. clothes, their bodies, because the clo- clothing once that gets wet, that's like a lead weight that's gonna bring you down. Yeah. I mean, I know I've had to, sw- and they had like these life jackets on too, so. So the rafters in this little experiment after the segment, the rafters gave up like a, like a quarter mile out from from Alcatraz. They had to give up because it was just too difficult. And they, I think MythBusters tried to do this too, and I don't think they were able to do it either with the raft. So I thought it was interesting though that you, if you were in the right shape, you had a better chance of just going it, just your own body yeah. being able to swim than you would on a fucking raft. I thought that was pretty that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that that was interesting. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the Alcatraz uh, Escape from Alcatraz. I know- Well, there was another segment we already talked about it on the show though that was on the Alcatraz episode. It was the the guy who was it wasn't Alcatraz related. He just escaped from a prison. Cuz they also talked about other people who escaped Oh, from they talked about they mentioned John P Scott and Lee Parker. Um they saw it through yeah. some bars and uh Parker gave up as soon as he like got to the water but scott uh-huh. actually made it uh to the bay or whatever and um he was almost dead by the time he went ashore some kids saw him thought he was a dead body called the cops um uh, they he basically got rearrested all over again you know because he that guy almost made it he, he was almost the first one to to escape well, he made it for um, like there was another one. For, he made it for like thirty minutes until he got captured yeah. again. <laughs> yeah, but there's another one that I think that was also on this special that was not Alcatraz. It was that guy who was in a ski mask who shot like these kids at a at a at a what is the name though? At a what the fuck is the name of that baseball thing where they they hang out? The dugout. You shot him at the dugout. And then he ended up in the in prison, and then found a way to escape by like being uh, good and getting access to computers and the library and stuff like that. They have theories that he was a, he found a way to escape by um, masquerading as like a tour guide. Yeah, this did none of, none of what you're Agent talking guy. about right now was on uh, my uh, Al- uh, my Alcatraz segment that I saw, so I have no idea what any. Okay. I, I, I thought that was also on there. Oh, too. I have seen that segment that you're talking about, but yeah, that's. Un- I thought that was also a part of that. N- not on my VHS rip, it wasn't that I I recorded myself a long time ago for my own purposes, which is totally not illegal. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I love this segment. Um, a very controversial opinion here between us and another Unsolved Mysteries podcast. Um, <laughs> the ladies that perhaps it's you absolutely hate this segment. Um, Oh yeah, I wanted to speak on that real quick. We tried to record an episode with them last week, and um, it was two and a half hours. It was a great segment. 
Wouldn't you say? I mean, I thought it was hilarious. I, I would say it was a great episode, not just a segment. It was a great episode for sure. Yeah, like we we like we really all were getting along famously and joking. And I even asked them what their problem was with this segment, and <laughs> you know, it was it, it, unfortunately there was some audio. It's gonna be awkward if you try to do that again. Oh yeah, but I'm going to. We're gonna we're gonna act like <laughs> we're gonna act like none of it happened originally, and we're gonna try to recreate all that. But yeah, we were supposed to do a call. Are we talking about the same cases again? Uh, like that's my. Question. I'm not sure, but anyway, that was supposed to happen. But yeah, I still, you know, I, I it's like I said on the podcast with them. Um, if 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 we're ever at a dinner with those ladies, we can talk about religion, we can talk about politics, but we we cannot talk about Alcatraz because that is just a sore <laughs> subject that we just agreed that we have to agree to disagree on. Because I think that it's a trigger for Josh. it is a trigger. Trigger. They are dead wrong in their opinion <laughs> that Alcatraz is not an interesting segment. I don't know what for me. I, I wouldn't say they're dead wrong. I just say it's a difference of opinions to each of their. Oh, own. Mike, stop being so goddamn diplomatic. They're wrong as shit. <laughs> R-O-N-G wrong so there's other Alcatraz related stuff too uh, there was a recent ar- uh, article on CBS News that was last updated on January 24th of 2018 and uh, apparently there was a letter that was found it is one of America's greatest mysteries. What happened to three men after they pulled off a daring prison break at Alcatraz in 1962? Only the worst criminals were sent to Alcatraz. And for 29 years, it was the most secure federal prison in the country, surrounded by the cold, rough waters of the Pacific. But brothers John and Clarence Anglin and Frank Morris disappeared into the, into the night and have never been found. The men have become folklore, fueled by Hollywood and popular shows. And in the last 55 years, theories about their fate multiplied as new evidence surfaces. A letter allegedly written by one of the escapees recently came to light. CBS San Francisco exclusively obtained it from a source. Here's a quote from it. My name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962 with my brother Clarence and Frank Morris. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. Yes, we all made it that night, but barely. The FBI says that this is the most recent piece of evidence that forced the agency to reopen the iconic cold case. The letter was sent to the San Francisco Police Department's Richmond Station in 2013. It's interesting. I mean, it's obviously a very famous case here in San Francisco, said Jeff, Har- Jeff Harp, a security analyst, an analyst for CBS San Francisco. Harp spent 21 years with the FBI, but did not work directly on this case. As a law enforcement person, I like if he said, as a law enforcement person... <laughs> I'd like to think that their escape attempt was not fruitful for them. Personally, as someone who swims in the bay, and we have a triathlon that goes on every year, there's not a single person that doesn't make that swim, he added. This past summer, CBS San Francisco got an exclusive tour of some never-before-seen parts of Alcatraz. After months of meticulous planning, on the night of June 11, 1962, the trio of bank robbers squeezed through the vents in the back of their cells. The FBI says they used a homemade drill with a, from a broken vacuum cleaner motor to widen the vents. Once they crawled through, they climbed up a network of pipes and plumbing in a commonly unguarded space. They set up a secret workshop at the top of their cells where they built and hid what they need, needed to escape. They eventually made it out through the ventilator that led them to the prison roof. They slid down the smokestack to the ground and launched a raft made of more than 50 raincoats, and they also created life vests and wooden paddles. The next morning, guards found their dummy heads made of plaster, paper mache, paint, and real human hair in their cells. 
According to a letter, Frank died in 2008, and John's brother died three years later. The writer makes a deal. If you announce on TV that I will be promised to first to first go to jail for no more than a year and get medical attention, I will write back to let you know exactly where, where I am. This is no joke. The U.S. Marshals, which is the sole agency investigating the case today, says the FBI lab examined the letter for fingerprints and DNA in the handwriting. The FBI results were inconclusive. So that means yes, and it means no. So this leaves everything in limbo, said Harp. The writer of the letter says he spent many years after his escape from Alcatraz living in Seattle. He also mentions that he lived in North Dakota for eight years and currently lives in Southern California. In a statement to CBS San Francisco, the U.S. Marshals Service writes, There is absolutely no reason to believe that any of them would have changed their lifestyle and become became completely law-abiding citizens after this escape. Why not? They escaped from Alcatraz. The Federal Bureau of Prison says that they drowned once they got off the Alcatraz, got off Alcatraz, and their bodies were swept out to the Pacific Ocean. End of story, says National Park Service Ranger John Cantwell. You're, you're a National Park Ranger. Like, you're really an expert on that? Yeah, right. New evidence presented in 2015 by the History Channel special shows a photo allegedly showing escape brothers John and Clarence Anglin in Brazil 13 years after the Great Escape. If the men were alive today, Frank Morris would be 90 years old and John and Clarence Anglin would be 86 and 87. That's it? I didn't believe they made it, but uh, that's because of what the officers were saying. Bayback was 15 years old and living on the island with her family when the men broke free. Uh, that is offer of Jolene Bayback, who was quoted earlier. Her father was the acting warden. I was awakened by the siren, which I'd never heard before, so I wasn't really sure what exactly it was, she said. She has since written several books on Alcatraz. CBS San Francisco showed her a copy of the, lever, of the letter. No evidence, lots of allegations, no real evidence, nothing you can follow up on, she said. So basically, she called bullshit on it. As for the U.S. Marshals, they sell CBS San Francisco. They consider this lead closed with no merit. They're getting up there in age. Someone knows because if they made it out, they communicated with somebody. So someone, somebody somewhere knows that's still alive, added Harp. So we really didn't get much extra except some interesting kind of theories and, you know, a potential letter. So I thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah, that's cool. I can't believe uh, that must have been. what. When was that article from? It said 2018 was when it was last updated, but because uh, I'm thinking they'd ha they'd have to be way older than than in their 80s, and I mean I'm thinking like they'd have to be like centenarians at this point. But didn't this happen in the 50s? Oh, it was the 60s, so yeah, maybe this happened in the 60s. Maybe that maybe that's right. All right, so that was the Alcatraz segment, um, and and as it took up most of the Unsolved Mysteries case, as it is taking up most of our podcast, but we do have another. <laughs> Another uh, fan favorite, and I, I guess I know why this is a fan favorite. It's a really good ghost segment because there's so much emotion. Yeah, it's one of the best ghost segments for sure, and it's a real shame that it's not on Amazon Prime for people to check it out. I really don't know why, but my guess is there's some legal thing. That must be the case. There's got to be, because if you listen to, uh, if you go to our podcast, I'm sure a lot of you have heard it. At the very bottom, uh, when I had to, when when we were dealing with that uh, lawyer for John and Terry, um, I, I had to take all the Unsolved Mysteries episodes down and get all their copyrighted shit out of there or whatever. And on the rebranding of the show announcement, I say, oh, just stick around, guys. I've got, I've been in talks with Tiffany Tallman. 
which at the time I had been, Tiffany being the daughter of the uh, uh, Alan Tallman and Debbie, I think is the wife's name. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I was in I was in talks with her husband to be interviewed on our podcast, and for some reason I had to go through the husband, you know, to get any information, and uh, we we never ended up uh, actually having a conversation. We, we never got to the point to talk, which really bummed me out because I would have loved to have talked to the daughter and find out, you know, found out more details. But uh, he said something to the extent of um, she's she wants to set the record straight on a few things and i mentioned the bunk bed and he's like oh yeah that damn bunk bed and said so i think it was some something to the extent of unsolved mysteries kind of blew it out of proportion or 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 focused on the wrong thing or something so anyway that's that's just some little inside info on that so uh this case also uh has a special place in my special price get it together there jimmy I'm just uh, doing my Sean Connery. Doing your there, your stroke me. stroke Connery. <laughs> stroke guy. <Con. laughs> Suck it, Trebek. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, it has a special place in my heart because it, I do remember watching this segment on Lifetime when I was younger. So it was one of the first uh, ghost segments I remember seeing. So this is definitely one that I am. 100% willing and ready to talk about again with better audio. Yeah. Because it deserves it, just like Al- Alcatraz did. So this is the Tallman House. It took place in Horicon, Wisconsin, and it was a horrifying haunted house encounter in Horicon, Wisconsin. So the name of the town fits. It happened around February of 1987, and the house that is shown in this segment is actually the 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 house the tallman house it is the actual Tom, tallman house where these uh scary and terrifying events supposedly happened and uh they even shot the reenactment inside of the house so i guess it's one of those things where it's no longer haunted Kind of like what happened with the Amityville house. Oh, they left. The Lutzes left. And then anybody else who stayed there didn't encounter anything whatsoever supernatural. Well, that related. happens a lot on Unsolved Mysteries for the ghost segments, at least. Uh, the the energy seemed to attach to certain people, as it were. Yeah. Or certain But items. then sometimes it's the opposite, where it doesn't attach to a certain person. It's just the place itself is haunted as Yeah, it's as just fun. the place itself. Like the Black Hope. Or the comedy store or whatever, if you believe that. Yeah. (laughs) The entity in the basement. So, in February of 1987, Alan and Debbie Tallman brought home a bunk bed that they purchased at a secondhand shop, and they put it in their basement. Now, uh, in this reenactment, I love the intro. Uh, Robert Stack talks about how this was a battle with the supernatural that they were destined to lose or something like that. Yeah, and Robert Stack's on, like, a cruise liner for some reason. <laughs> like It's because it was the Queen Mary. Oh, was it? Remember? Yeah, remember uh, that uh, this uh, this was this was featured in the Halloween episode. Oh, okay, so that's why. Okay. And the, the, they had a segment that was on the Queen Mary talking about the ghosts that were on the Queen Mary, so that's why 
Robert Stack. Looked like he was on a cruise ship. I've only ever been able to watch this segment out of context of the original special that it was a part of. So I, I've, on, I've yeah. only ever seen it on like the box set. Um, uh-huh. And I also, I also like how they begin the segment with Robert Stack talking about Alan and Debbie Tallman brought home a bunk bed and they're in the basement yeah. with this bunk bed. And I'm just like, what? How is... How is this going to be relevant <laughs> to the story? You know, it's already got kind of gotcha. Like, who cares about your the bunk bed? What does this have to do with ghosts? Yeah, weird. <laughs> the ghosts, uh, uh, they like to sleep on bunk beds. What? I they like their pillow talk at night. <laughs> so uh, they brought home a bunk bed that they purchased at a secondhand shop, and they put it in their basement. And when the Tallmans moved the bed upstairs in May of 1987, it marked the beginning of nine months of horror. For the family now this segment also has uh actors who are playing the tallmans because the uh, actual tallmans were like no we're not acting we're not uh gonna be on screen we're not gonna show our faces so they this is early in unsolved mysteries is uh attempts to blur people out i could still kind of see who they were <laughs> like not not entirely but it wasn't really that good of a job of hiding who they are. Like if you actually knew them, if you were like lived around the same area or you were like church friends with them or something, you'd recognize their tone of voice and you, you'd recognize the silhouette. It was not really the best job. I, I guess for people who don't know them at all, then yeah, that, that, that definitely uh, would have, helped it definitely did help people not recognize them but i mean isn't this for people who they might know like not for people who are just watching the show or like oh okay yeah well they live somewhere in horicon wisconsin i'm here over in vancouver washington it's not like i'm gonna run into them anytime soon i also never really <laughs> understood when they would blur when they would do the silhouette and shadow them out but they wouldn't um they wouldn't modify their voices at all yeah that's what happened here like they didn't modify their voices at all so it's like so. anybody i mean that's just as good as your face being on the tv as soon as you say anything out in public someone's gonna be like hey you sound like that guy on unsolved mysteries who had the haunted bunk bed yeah. I also love how the guy who plays um, Alan Tallman is. <laughs> he's got the f he's got a fake beard. Like, it's oh totally no, th not this real. guy just this guy. They basically got Kenny Loggins to play Alan Tallman. <laughs> 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 Fucking this guy looks just like Highway to the Danger Zone. Kenny Loggins. I mean, Highway to the Danger Zone. Just Key Largo, uh, Kenny Loggins <laughs> playing the. Gonna take a ride into zone yeah i can't sing it his range is too high he does have kind of a high range that's a hard one but um yeah he does he's, he's like a he's a lumberjack loggins <laughs> he's lumberjack loggins he's got the plaid shirt and everything and it, this actor definitely did not have an actual beard this is totally fake think so i i swear there was one shot uh, where it looked like he didn't even have the bottom part on. It was just like mustache, part of the, the beard on the side, and like the bottom part fell off or something. And the director was like, well, we don't have time to reshoot it. We only have a certain amount of time to shoot in this house. And I'm kind of freaked out by this house anyway because it potentially was haunted with witch demons and shit. So we'll just, we'll just, we'll just deal with it. 
Now I got to go back and watch the segment and see and look for a <laughs> fake beard because I, I I don't know I the beard never really caught my uh, gaze as something that was uh, completely fake. I feel bad. It definitely looked fake to me. I mean, you could be right. Maybe it was one of those where it's an actual beard, but it just looks fake because you use dye or something. Yeah, like I'm that. looking at right now. It, it it does totally look fake. Like it does not look like it is <laughs> natively growing out of that guy's skin. It looks like it was pasted on or something yeah yeah it's not yeah. yeah that the more i look at it it does uh i mean was the beard that important to the story i mean <laughs> was one of the conditions that the reenactor portray alan was that he had to have a beard the actor i mean shit <laughs> i think a clean face would have uh d conveyed the story just as much as uh this fake beard, which apparently wasn't as distracting as uh, it was to Mike, but uh, yeah, it does look fake upon further re-examination. So, since the first night the beds were slept in, the house became haunted. The children, who were rarely ill before, suddenly became ill for no apparent reason. Like, they were sick for, like, uh, one after another for, like, weeks. So, like, this is really strange, for sure. The night that the family moved the beds upstairs, their son Danny was in a room next to it. And he had this old clock radio that he inherited from his parents. And the radio then took on a life of its own and it started turning itself on and uh, randomly switching channels under uh, by its own power. Yeah, and the kid was like complaining like, Mommy, Daddy, the radio's doing weird stuff. And, yeah. and in the interview, Alan's pretty much like, well, if the kid was going to have such a damn issue with the radio, we just took it out of his room. <laughs> 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 I loved how, how just... Don't give a shit, you know. Alan was like, he was just like, totally, just matter of fact. Uh, damn kid, I'm, I'm like, hung over. Who gives a fuck about the radio? Shut up. <laughs> Trying to bone your mom. Don't you want a little sister? Um, but I thought they did a good job in the reenactment showing that, showing the radio dials move by themselves, and I thought the kid actor did a good job looking incredulous and being freaked out by it. So. That's the kind of haunted house stuff that I miss in a lot of horror films nowadays. Like, they just overdo it with, like, fucking scary music and jump scares. Like, it's scarier to have something like that, and especially scarier to have the thing with the paintbrush, which still gives me chills thinking about it. It's something so simple, but that's the kind of stuff that really creeps me out, because it's it's the kind of thing that you it's you know something had to have happened. And you were not the one that did that or something. And it just, you walk, you walked out of the room for a second. You come back in and things are in disarray. And you're just like, there's no way that I could have done this. And that's when you realize that maybe this house is haunted. Maybe there's something supernatural going on. Maybe I need to call somebody. So, a few weeks later, Alan was painting the walls in his basement when he went up for lunch, and he placed the, the brush on the table. And But when he returned, the brush was in the bucket standing up with the bristles uh, standing straight up. That's, that, that and, is unremarkable. That, that particular manifestation is unremarkable. No, yeah, it is, but it's, that's how it starts. That's what I'm saying. That's how it starts. Most of the time, they don't start off just... Bam! Oh, fire and, and evil witches and you're dead. Like, it doesn't automatically usually start like that. It starts with subtle things like that, little things like that. And that's, I, I don't know, I just I just like that. That creeps me out 
uh, quite a bit because that's when you realize, okay, something isn't right. And then you, you're like trying to put it in the back of your head like, oh, that was nothing or whatever. Maybe I'm drunk or maybe I'm tired. And then when things escalate, then you go back to that point. You're like, okay, yeah, all right. Something was was off with that. Some stuff that's normal that becomes abnormal uh, really does creep me out. Like in the film The Changeling, when Dorsey uh, Scott's character just leaves the room and the piano plays by itself a couple keys. So I also felt this segment did a really phenomenal job in terms of displaying uh, the supernatural uh, occurrences in a way that worked with the low budget, but also made it so you had to use your imagination except for some scenes like the fire, the garage on fire, which is an absolutely fucking terrible effect. Oh yeah. It is awful. Even for that time period, that was bad. I just posted a picture, a screen cap of that to our Twitter account. And I was like, <laughs> special effects, still 10 out of 10. Don't argue with me on this. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, other than that, I think it did a good job. It didn't show any apparitions. It didn't show the witch. It didn't do that. Thank so, God. I thought that was that would have been that would yeah. that would have ruined it. <laughs> See, like some some uh, actress in old age witch makeup. <laughs> yeah it's what you don't see and i mean time after time with unsolved mysteries it's always the that's always been the case you know it's what you don't see that makes it scarier than what you do see well i mean with the allagash abductions case the what makes it scary is the music and and, and a lot and a lot of it is the pictures they they had the pictures the artwork that they drew uh take up the majority of the screen time they didn't really do a lot of reenactments of the aliens if I remember correctly so they were just like, we're going to let that speak for itself. Yeah, well, yeah, I can't really talk about the Allagash abductions. It's a sore, sore topic now. <laughs> I don't really believe that it's totally fake, like that one guy Yeah, says. but he, he, he poisoned the well with his fucking article, Chuck Rack, <laughs> that, that surly bastard. It's still a good segment. Just like this is a good segment. So despite the fact that there's probably some legal reasons why uh, this segment's not on Amazon. But it was on the DVD box set for some reason. Yeah, that's kind of weird. I guess they that was they were managed to get around that for the DVD box set. But anyway, you had the paintbrush, and then uh, when the youngest daughter was sleeping in the bunk bed, she claimed that she had seen a witch in fire. And then a month later, Danny saw the same thing. And then they brought in the family pastor, and he felt the presence of the devil inside the, the devils. House. Uh, perhaps Satan. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, several times doors would bang open and shut. Strange voices would call out of nowhere. And a week before Christmas, Danny told his mother he wanted to leave. I love the way this particular sequence was shot. They shot it from behind the director or the cinematographer shot it behind the Christmas tree. And they had like, so it had this really eerie, surreal look to it. And, and, and it shot it behind the Christmas tree with the Christmas lights. And then kind of zoomed in on the kid in who's sleeping on the couch and then panned away to the kid. Yeah, I actually... And they also had a very creepy rendition of Silent Night. Yeah, I was... I made a note I made too. a note of that exact scene as well. I, I, it's funny that you point that out because, like, I, I, I'm wanting to say that that was Unsolved Mysteries' first use of what I like to call Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, <laughs> they used that theme 
in many other segments after this one. Segments that have nothing to do with Christmas. Like, it'll be like, you know, the alien spacecraft opened up and I saw inside and it'd be like, dun, 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 dun. but it's like creepier than that you know it's all like you know distorted dissonant and atonal yeah it was it's it's much creepier but i think i want to say this is the first use of the silent night deadly night theme um that they (laughs) went to you they went on to use so very often in the show that just makes me think of the movie silent night deadly night with a killer of course it would make you think of a movie So, um, I recommend people check that out too. It's a crazy movie. Like it's one of those so bad it's good films. Uh, it's a guilty pleasure. Oh yeah, another thing. Um, well, you haven't gotten to him walking around the garage, see it on fire yet. No, I haven't okay, gotten to I'll, that I'll yet. Wait. So, <laughs> so uh, Danny told his mother he wanted to leave. Frustrated, Alan then told the spirits to get out of his house, and then if they wanted to fight someone, they could fight him. The actor in this, I think he did an okay job. But yeah, you know, it's one of those things that don't quit your day job. He reminded me of my like dad when my dad would get angry in the 90s or something <laughs> like, you want to fight someone, fight me. He's all like bowing up in the living room, rock, walking around like a crazy person. But I mean, I don't know. I, 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 it's charming in some weird way. It, it, it definitely is. Is it, You could see the inspiration here uh, with the Am- Amityville Horror. So uh, I could definitely see that this was inspired by the Amity of a Horror because the bearded guy who's yelling at the spirit, just like James Brolin did in the Amity of a Horror. And in the Amity of a Horror, he's like, Dear God, you're tearing me apart. <laughs> you're tearing me apart, uh, Lisa. That would be great. Like the room, but like the haunted version. Tommy Wiseau as the, uh, does reenactments for all the Unsolved Mysteries segments. <laughs> <laughs> You want to fight somebody? Fight me! (laughs) (laughs) You stupid ghost! (laughs) No, I did not. I did not do it. Oh, hi, William Roll. (laughs) (laughs) There's a ghost in my house, okay? Can you get it out? Thanks, bye. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... So he picks the fight with a ghost, and then a few weeks later, on January 7th, 1988, Alan returned home from the late shift, and he heard an eerie howling sound, and he went to investigate and was outside his house. And the wind that's howling literally does howl, you know, like a, like a wolf, which I'm like, has there ever really been wind that howls and it actually goes, oh, <laughs> it took a, they took that a little too literally. I like it when he's walking around the side of his house. He's like, hello. Like, he sounds like the most mid. <laughs> he sounds he's, like he's Canadian, yeah. too. All of a sudden, his accent is Canadian. Yeah, the most Midwestern Canadian, like, hello, I've ever heard. Hello. Uh, anybody there, eh? Uh, got some uh, got some maple syrup in my house if you want to have some of it. Uh, nah, nah, I've pissed off all the Canadian listeners. <laughs> no, actually, it's hard to piss off the Canadian listeners because they're so damn friendly. So then a voice came out of the howling and said, come here. And I'm surprised they didn't have like a creepy voice like in the entity. Was it the entity or was it? The, what was the one with the not the entity? It's the one with the creepy girl, the girl who gets possessed. Oh, yeah. You're talking about um, Alan Mann. Lake Wales haunting. 
Yeah, the man house. Yeah. yeah. Surprised they didn't have something like that, you know, where some creepy. Well, nobody got possessed in this one. Ghostly voice. Well, I'm surprised they didn't have some creepy, uh, ghostly female voice go come here or something like that. I'm surprised they didn't. Well, do that. again, you know, I think maybe with their budget or or maybe they still had like a sense of like what would be super corny and what wouldn't back in the early days. Yeah, but the but but the uh absolutely terrible superimposed fire image on the garage that that was that was okay. I mean, I, but but funny. like insulting that is almost like going back to the phonograph and being like that piece of shit phone. <laughs> Look at this iPhone six. It's like no, back in nineteen eighty eight and eighty nine, you could have done a better job than that, All right. for sure. Or just set up a miniature and burn the. Damn I, I honestly, thing and shoot I honestly that. don't even know how you would achieve the that that effect of the fire that they did. Like that, that's. You just build a mock-up of the garage, and you'd actually light well, it no, on I'm fire. Well, no, I'm talking about on the sec on the unsolved mystery segment. Like, I don't even know how it doesn't look like green screen. It's like worse. Yeah, I don't even know how they did that. It's, it's weird. It's, it, I don't. It's so I don't know. It's like they. It's interesting incompetence. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it looks really bad though. <laughs> Go to it our does. Twitter account at uncovering um. That's our Twitter handle, and uh, I put a, post a screen cap of that on there so you can see what we're talking about. Yeah. So Alan went around the back to see if anyone was there, and then he went back to the garage, and he saw that it was on fire. So then he went back inside to get a fire extinguisher, but when he came back out, he saw that the fire was gone. And, yeah, the fire was just hastily superimposed onto uh, an image of the garage. Like, if it's... It, it, they didn't even try with this one. Like, it, it's like you could make the lighting a little bit darker, like, make the flames more accentuated with... Uh, you know, maybe some artist who comes in and paints some orange and red on there or something. I don't know, that, that might make it look worse. Yeah, it could, but at least put some effort <laughs> into it. It just looks like they just slapped some fire effect on there. It looks like something else that was on fire, and they somehow key keyed out yes. the fire animation, and yes. they pasted it onto this image of a garage. Yeah, and it doesn't even match up. Yeah, it's it's some it's some definitely some early early ass Photoshop stuff going on here. <laughs> they might have actually used Photoshop because Photoshop might have been around by then. I know Photoshop was around in 1993, so I'm guessing it was around before then, but I'm not 100% sure. But Photoshop is not just a new thing. Yeah, weren't you talking about that for Meteor Man that was used a lot? Yeah, yeah. I, I found that interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that either. So, um Alan sees his house uh, light on fire in, in the, one of the worst effects you will ever see in your life, especially on this show. And he saw that, went back inside, came back out. There's no signs of, of his garage being on fire. So he went back inside the house. He went to reach for his lunch pail. And then this entity then grabbed it and threw it across the room. And that's a nice example of practical effects there. They probably just had like a... a piece of fishing wire or something and pulled it but um it was done practically it wasn't cgi so give it kudos for that but of course they couldn't afford to do cgi back then and really didn't have the technology to do a cgi lunch pail in the first yeah, place that would be hilarious if they tried it's a it's like a normal lunch pail then all of a sudden it turns into this like animated polygonal like awful 
screensaver <laughs> from the early 90s looking thing flying across basically how their ufos looked like i could i could see that you know it all of a sudden gets brighter than every other image on the screen and it's like uh yeah that's that that looks like shit yeah that totally happened yeah so the entity threw his lunch pail across the room and then uh he was understandably shaken by that and he ended up, Alan started sleeping in his daughter's room to provide her protection and to help her fall asleep because she was having a hard time falling asleep because this damn witch kept showing up and making her life a living hell. This, pe- this pesky so, witch bitch. Yeah, this pesky witch bitch over here. And <clears throat> this this scene I thought was pretty effective where he's sleeping in her bedroom and then this like ghostly mist appears and then you just you're just hearing uh the recollections from Alan here. And so the the guy with the fake beard, uh he's he's there. Uh the the backwoods Kenny Loggins. Not really backwoods, I would yeah, l- lumberjack. Just normal Loggins. Kenny Loggins. I mean, just how normal Kenny Loggins. <laughs> Kenny Loggins on uh, on vacation. And he's there laying on uh, on uh, the floor, and then here comes the ghostly mist, and then he's the Alan's talking about how, yeah, this ghostly mist came over me, and then you know this voice said, "You're dead," and then that was that was when I was just I I just couldn't couldn't do it anymore, you know, like he he was like really really, uh, understandably freaked out by that, yeah, basically terrified, basically caused him to have like a massive anxiety attack. He like shut down. They called the the preacher over and wouldn't you? I don't know what I'd do because I don't really believe in the whole demons. I mean, I do to a certain extent, I guess, believe in it. But like, I don't know what I would do. I, well, I mean, like they said in the beginning, they said we're, they were Christians and whatever, but they were, you know, they were still honestly, I would, any of this sort of I stuff would probably blame it on myself. I would probably think that I was like going insane, like I was having some kind of mental breakdown or something like yeah. I, I live by yeah. myself, too. So it's not like anyone here can corroborate anything I see or hear. So, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> the possum might be able to. God, fuck that <laughs> possum. I hope he's here. He's listening to this. <laughs> fuck you, possum. You piece of shit. Get out of his wall. Yeah. <laughs> you tell him, Mike. <laughs> so, um, but I also thought it was pretty creepy when Alan, he was interviewed in the beginning. and He's talking about, I had like these these images in my head of like coming home and then seeing my family destroyed. I thought that was a weird term and, to use too. seeing my family destroyed. Yeah. Like, are your family buildings now? Or I mean, I could <laughs> think mangled maybe, or seeing my family destroyed and then dead. <laughs> I floor. could see, come home, see images of my family killed to death. <laughs> they, they were killed until they died. And then they passed away after that. <laughs> so um he called the pastor over uh to because he was a wreck and uh a few days later alan was working late and he asked a relative to watch the girls and this guy was a complete skeptic until that night when he saw the witch and he screamed and he screamed the most epic this is the best and amazing just amazing scream. uh this is just this I don't know why more people haven't talked about this yet, probably because the Talmud segment's kind of hard to find at this point, but this scream is just, 
this should be a soundbite like the Wilhelm scream has become like a famous scream heard in a bunch of movies as does this need as does this scream need to be as well because it is just uh I'm gonna uh uh, barring any kind of war you know legal threats or anything I'm actually I'm gonna I have to put the scream in here even it's it's well, we put in this. It's it's right up there with the scream from uh, the other ghost segment we talked about. The one that um, Devil's Backbone, the Devil's Backbone. <laughs> so here, real quick. So this this is what the this is the scream that we're dealing with. <laughs> All right. So that that gives you a little idea. <laughs> gives you a little idea. <laughs> yeah, it's just. But see, the funny thing about that scene is, is like, even when, like, when the guy, like, he screams bloody murder like that, you would expect the next scene in the hallway would be him running out and having this hysterical look on his face. He screams, and then the next scene, he's just kind of sauntering out of the room with, like, this. Yeah, it's like he's walking out of the room with, with this dumbfounded look on his face, like he's a bit hang up. Yeah, like, he looks something. like he just got woken up or something. He looks very, like, calm and. Yeah, it's like the, those two those two things do not go together. You do not have no. that blood curdling scream and then just kind of wander out of your room, rubbing the sleep out of your eyes. Like, yeah, you know, I do that. It's not a big deal. <laughs> ah! See, I just did it right then. See, it wasn't big. Ah! I just, you know, I do it all the time. It's a tick. Yeah, it's a tick. It's yeah, tick. I, I, I have Tourette's. I didn't see anything in there. <laughs> uh, so um, Debbie then told the relative to get everything together because. We're getting out of there. Now we're getting out of there. We're leaving forever. We're, we're going to leave this place. We're going to drop everything and, and leave our dream home. Uh, very similar to the Amityville Horror. It's the same kind of thing. Two weeks later, the Tolmans had the bunk beds destroyed. And I love this shot of the bunk beds in like some junkyard. And then here comes this big ass fucking... What it, I don't even know what that machinery. is. Yeah, it's like a... Was that a dump truck? No, it's, it's like a, it's almost like an earth mover, but it's got like, instead yeah. of having rubber tires, it's got these like metal, like studded tires yeah. that look like their only purpose is to like cause havoc and horror in the hearts of men. Yeah. Like it's only purpose yeah. is to drive over the bones of its enemies. Like, yeah, <laughs> it just runs over the bunk bed and destroys it. And then afterwards, the Tolmans have had no further paranormal experiences. And in April 1988, a family moved into the Tallman's old home and have also had no haunting experiences. I'm starting to wonder if the possum is dead because I just saw a fruit fly in my room and, and there's Uh-oh. like no food anywhere nearby. Uh-oh. And my windows and doors haven't really been open today, so I'm really hoping. But he seemed to be, he seemed it seemed like he was pretty energetic though. I mean, he got out of well, the Well, I also fed him a lot of pizza. I mean, he's probably Probably not. You killed him. <laughs> you overfed the I mean, possum. he's at least got to get constipation because that was... <laughs> you killed him with, with food poisoning. That was, stuff, with that was stuffed crust pizza that he ate, so that was a lot of cheese. <laughs> this is the possum cast. Well, welcome to... I uh, hope you are enjoying the possum cast, everybody. Look, look that <laughs> possum's been a big part of my life for in a bad way for the past few weeks, so now it's going to be a big part of y'all's <laughs> lives, too. So, uh, this case was featured as part of the Halloween episode that aired on October 26, 1988. Uh, this, uh, segment, this particular episode also had the Queen Mary and it had, uh, the, the lovely old couple with the bell. Oh, I love that one. Uh, they were in that, uh, particular, uh, episode as well. 
The Tallmans were and and the uh the one where the bar, the bar that was haunted, with the the guy who liked loved to watch be a creeper and watch the ghost go around and yeah women on the yeah. shoulder and shit. Yeah, the old couple that was called Tatum's Ghost. I don't I know which segment yeah. you're talking about with the other one, but the name is evading me right now. So the Tallmans were beset by unwanted attention as a result of earlier ghost hysteria, which they did not seek. They had turned down a lucrative tabloid offer about their experience as they did not think it was right to make any money off their children's misfortune. Wow. The Tolmans agreed to share their story with Unsolved Mysteries under three conditions. They were censored during the interview. Not very well. Maybe that's why they were like, we don't want the segment shown. Or maybe that's why they're maybe they try to sue John and Terry. It's like, you didn't really censor us, you assholes. <laughs> we said censor us. Everybody could hear what we sounded like and. You didn't have the shadow, the, 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 you didn't put enough shadow on our faces. They also wanted their children's names to be protected by aliases and all the reenactments of um, their experiences be done yeah, by course. actors. Those were the three conditions. Yeah, and, and the Tolman House activity was described in greater extent in the book Haunted America by Michael Norman and Beth Scott. But at no time in their research do they link the hauntings to a bunk bed. The activity is instead linked to the property as being located on or near former Native American burial grounds. Oh, the Always the Native American. Damn Native American burial grounds. <laughs> I don't know why you guys are so upset. All we did was like take your land and kill all of you. I mean, geez, water under the bridge at this point, right? Reminds me of Poltergeist because it's a Native American. It, dude, burial it reminds grounds. me of every fucking ghost movie. It reminds me of fucking. <laughs> Uh, uh, pet cemetery. It reminds, you know, it reminds yeah. me of like any any fucking. That's not really a ghost movie, though. Well, and you know, it's it, it's something. It's like a zombie. <laughs> there's there's a burial ground involved. Yeah, yeah, there is a burial. Yeah, surprisingly, ground, so. there's a lot of bad Stephen King movies out there. I like Pet Cemetery, I, though, and they're remaking it. It was okay. Was yes, the book probably is better, but a book is a different medium than a feature film. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, but yeah, it's like Native American burial grounds, like the Black Hope curse, but that wasn't Native was Americans, that was slave, uh, former slaves. So, so, um, it just, it just makes me think of Poltergeist, so the whole thing where you moved the body, you only, you didn't move the bodies, you know, you only moved the headstones. Sometimes. You the bodies, but you only moved the headstones. Sometimes dead is better. <laughs> so, uh, uh, for a little bit extra info on the Tallman House, I'm looking at this website called Cult of Weird. Yeah, we're going to have to wrap this up pretty quickly. i got to go to my Applebee's gig. so uh, I am for sure. Um, this starts out with, uh, talks about some little more info and kind of the stuff that happened in there that was not mentioned in the, in, in the segment. Like uh, the town was whispering about uh, bleeding walls. A hole to hell in the basement. What? A ghost-powered snowblower oh that cleaned the driveway all by itself. <laughs> Jesus Christ! And then, and then the media descended on the otherwise sleepy neighborhood, along with hordes of curious thrill seekers. In the April 1988 edition of the Quill, Barrett J. Brunsman wrote, "Ghost rumors had swept through the crowd at the Friday night basketball game at the local high school. Hundreds of cars swept down the Larrabee Street past the Tallman home." People walked through the yards of other nine house of the other nine houses on the block, climbing over fences and peering into windows. Drunks showed up. They weren't afraid of no ghosts. They tried the doors and windows of the Tallman home, intent on getting inside to prove their bravery. 
When the police ordered the drunks and gawkers to stay away from the house, a few would-be Ghostbusters told the cops to go to hell. Arrests for disorderly conduct were made, and the street was barricaded. No wonder the Tolmans were like, censor us, please. Yeah, but I mean, any more the, of this nonsense. You know, the fact that they didn't want they didn't want to make money off of it. They, I mean, that just lends to the absolute yeah. credibility of this story. Well, at least they didn't write a book about it. And you didn't really sound very confident there. You were just like, yeah, the fact that they... Well, no, I'm saying, like... That's the credibility of no, the story. No, it does, because... I mean, I'm, I was being sincere, You're because, like, you know, every time you got the Diane Lebanick syndrome, you know, that she shows up on... Un ghost she, boy. Yeah, ghost boy syndrome. They show up on Unsolved Mysteries, then they got a book that they're selling, and they're... You know, wanting to be all in the reenactment, and they got you know say, Diane Lebanick saying she doesn't know anything about UFOs. Yet when they go in her basement, yeah. they find all this shit about UFOs, and it's just like okay. But when they go in there in silhouette, they want their names changed. Uh -huh. You know, it just it really to me it, it you know as yeah. they have nothing to gain. I, I I mean I can't say for sure that this didn't happen, and I definitely can't say for sure that it did. So it's one of those where. It, I I'm I'm I lend more credence to this particular haunting case than the, some of the other ones that have been featured on the show. Um, the media sensationalized the haunting in absence of the facts. They regurgitated the gossip circulating around town, and eventually Glamen talked to the Tallman, talked the Tallmans into speaking with the press in order to dispel rumors and hopefully put an end to the unruly mobs in Larrabee Street. Uh, this is Police Chief Douglas Glamen who actually decided to step up and protect the Tallmans. He met with journalist he met with journalist James B Nelson from the Milwaukee Sentinel, who was more interested in writing an article about a genuinely troubled family than exploiting a ghost story. The family then agreed to talk to him. The producers of Unsolved Mysteries, then a brand new television series in its first season, soon caught wind of the story. It wasn't long before a film crew rolled, rolled into town to shoot a segment on the haunted bunk bed. They hired local talent for the dramatic reenactments. Maybe that, that explains probably the the, the acting. Uh, filmed on location inside the house of permission from the new owners. Uh, notably, the segment was not included when the series was released to stream on Amazon in 2017. Uh, Reddit AMA with series creators Terry Dunmire and uh, John Crosgrove helped shed some light on why it might have been excluded. One fan on Reddit asked, can you help me understand what happens behind the scenes that would prompt you to remove individual segments? And Meyer and... Moyer and Cosgrove responded, We have a legal staff that keeps track of cases to make sure that we do not infringe on anyone's rights. Sometimes the statute of limitations on a case is passed. We always try to be respectful as we can to the people who were featured in the segments. Which basically, legal reasons. Yeah, and I guess, uh, whoops, by me accidentally uh, revealing one of the daughter's uh, real names. <laughs> Maybe you need to... No, I've already said it like a 500 times on this podcast. Yeah, so what happened to the bunk bed? Nelson wrote it in, in a February 19th, 1988 article for the Sentinel that the family had it buried in a private landfill in the Horicon area where they felt no one was likely to build a house. So... That's such a stupid question. Was, Out of all the questions you could ask them, yeah. where's the bunk bed? Durr. Like, what a dumb question. You get the opportunity to ask them shit, and you ask them, where's the, where's the bunk bed? That's like, that's like a troll question. Well, that was in 1988, though. Like, this wasn't like a recent AMA question. Well, yeah, I know, but like, even even for back then, that's a. I think that's a stupid. Yeah. Question. So the exact location of the bunk bed remains unknown. So it wasn't crushed under the wheels of some uh, terror 
Well, Trump. that's un, uh, that's incongruent with what was on the Unsolved Mysteries segment. <laughs> so the exact location remains unknown. And uh, yeah, so um, that's a little bit of the info. I'm curious to actually check out the Haunted America book to see what extra bits of information are there about this case. You can check that out um, after you read I... Michelle Remembers for our Satanic Panic Mega Megathon. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> megathon. <laughs> All right. I like All that. All right, so anyway... Um, Instead of marathon, it's a megathon. That's, that's right. But anyway, uh, this is a mega-long episode yes. because Alcatraz took a long-ass time to talk about. Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed this podcast. If you like us, you can find us separately but equally on YouTube. You can find Mike at www. Did I? Why do I say www? Nobody cares about. You don't need that anymore. YouTube.com slash OCP Communications. Mike does movie reviews and a little bit more. What was the last movie you reviewed, Mike? Black Panther. Oh, shit. That's a controversial one to say anything bad about. <laughs> I hope you minded your P's and Q's on that one, buddy. I liked the movie, and I still got people calling me racist because I didn't love it. I actually like I so, like yeah. how you pointed out that it wasn't the first all-black cast, all-black superhero movie. You pointed no. out all the others in the past, and you you said something to the extent of, you know, people need to respect the uh, what, the people who came before them. You know, I thought that, I thought that yeah, was a really good true. point because, like, everyone's acting like there were no black superhero movies before black panther came out you know like it's like yeah actually there were spawn is one of my favorite superheroes of all time even though the, mo the, the movie the movie sucks, sucked but, yeah. but you know i love that character <laughs> you know I, I love spawn he deserves have you seen the hbo anime i series? own it yes i love the animated series Good. i have it Good. on dvd um anyway if you want to find me on youtube i'm youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts um i'm going to be releasing a new ep soon there's a trailer for that um he did a top 10 list on uh, best Weird Al songs that are not parodies. Yeah. Parody. Top 10 Weird Al. Top, best yeah, original top 10 songs. original Weird Al songs. So if you're interested in Weird Al or my original music. Uh, and no, Albuquerque is not on no, that list. No, we're, we're, I mean, I know I had told you this a long time ago, but I mean, I was really surprised when I found out that that was not an original Weird Al song. I was like, wow, I thought that was like his hallmark. I was surprised too. Yeah, like. Some, the rug burns really like they, the lead singer's claim to fame was he dated singer Jewel for a while like they were really not that well it almost makes me question the e efficacy of Weird Al like doing that yeah shut up yeah. I it had it was trouble for me saying the word fuck you uh, I'm, I'm getting hungry and cranky right now I gotta go um, anyway like uh. us everywhere on the web and we'll talk to you next week <laughs> bye see ya What's up, everybody? Just wanted to remind you that my album Koyana Scotsy is still out for uh, purchase on CD. I got about 10 CDs left, so if you want an actual hard copy, you might want to get on that soon. Uh, I can sign it for you, whatever you want. I don't know if I'm going to do a second run on those or not. And the album digitally is available on iTunes and anywhere else where you can buy digital music. Thanks. Now I'm recording. All right, go ahead and say something. Ah!
<laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> that works. Yeah, that scream is uh, epic, as the kids say. Do people... Do, do they? Do pe- yeah, oh my God, Mike. You are so fucking trendy. I can't, <laughs> can't believe how much of the lingo that you know. They probably don't use that anymore either, so I'm I, probably behind. I honestly don't think they use... Um, epic anymore i think epic is like 2000 faith no more well you know, besides the faith no more song you know i don't think the kids are saying oh that was epic bro no uh, well sometimes they do i don't know mike next time you're hanging around the shopping mall tell why don't you tell me i did go to the shopping mall recently but i didn't really run into that many kids because we did it like we went there like in the evening so you should go hang around the Hot Topic and like any of the kids that walk up. You should... I swear, I think the Hot Topic isn't even around at my mall. Either I missed it or it went out of business. I don't know. The Spencer's is still there. You should tell the kids that you have like 12,000 subs on your YouTube channel and they'll be like, <laughs> they'll be like, oh, wow, mister. Can we hang out with you? No, they're not going to be like that because they're like, that's nothing. PewDiePie <laughs> has five bajillion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't. I don't even think PewDiePie's like the shit anymore, right? You don't really. I mean, it's Logan Paul now. He's the new. No, he still he still does pretty well. And uh, forgive the listeners to this B-roll for all that crinkling. I was just getting out the uh, cloth to clean my glasses. Uh, I think the listeners will have to forgive you. I don't know if you're forgiving the listeners. I meant. Uh, well, I know. Excuse- I said forgive. Excuse me, or hey, forgive. Yeah. It's. You're you're learning, Mike. You're learning. <laughs> Education is important. Starting the awkwardness off. I just want to say, Ashley, the 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 Canadian um girl who sent me all that uh candy. Yeah. Uh, she has gotten me so fat. <laughs> I have been eating that stuff nonstop. My my kitchen looked like a fucking Canadian CVS or some some drugstore with all the candy everywhere. Maybe that's just a U.S. thing where we have yeah. drugstores that have candy out the ass. But uh-huh. I got God, I've gotten so f- I've just ugh, I'm on a, a like a plateau of fatness right now, and I can't can't get back down. <laughs> I'm like looking at a pack of Smarties right now, and they're not the Smarties like here in the U.S. where there's those like chalky tart things. These yeah, are, I remember these, those. Yeah, these are like M&Ms, basically, but mm-hmm. the candy coating is much thicker than an M&M. It's like a, eating like a like an Advil, but it's got chocolate in the middle. It's pretty good. Nice. <laughs> All right, let's see here. I think, I'm, I think I'm ready to go. I'm about as ready as I could be. Um... Hopefully this caffeine starts kicking in uh, soon. It will, Mike. I believe in it. You believe in the drug? I do. Just make sure make sure you slap your wrist to make them veins stick out before you try to insert the needle. <laughs> we are talking about heroin, right? No. Oh. Well, that's embarrassing. You don't drink mellow yellow that way. You don't inject it into your veins. Well, I think you do it that way. I think normal people don't. <laughs> man, I need my I need I need my fix, man. I need some mellow. I need to get mellow, man. 
Your mom's gonna find your cell phone. There's gonna be all these texts saying, Yo, man, you ready to get mellow tonight? She's gonna be like, Honey, I think our son's on drugs. He keeps talking about getting mellow. Getting mellow and watching a bunch of bad movies. A bunch of Shout Factory reissues. Watching Steel with Shaquille O'Neal. See, Mike, I tried to be cool and like your your other friend Matt or whatever by by saying the Shout Factory thing because that's like the only I know they're a movie thing, and I tried yeah. I tried to be cool just then and it, uh-huh. I don't I don't I don't think it worked. <laughs> yeah, not really. Mike, would you ever have me on your talking cinema? Uh, Talking cinema is kind of something I'm not doing as much of anymore, but um, would I have you on Celluloid Nation? I don't know. (laughs) You're like, I don't even do talking cinema anymore, but would I have you on Celluloid Nation? Uh, No, probably not. (laughs) Yeah, I don't blame you, Mike. I wouldn't have me on there either. I wouldn't be able to contribute anything. All right. You, you just be like, uh, yeah, you hear about this? You hear about that? Like, I haven't seen that movie. I haven't seen that. I don't know what to say. I don't know <laughs> this reference. I don't get anything you're saying. I don't know what you're talking about. Why'd you ask me to be on this stupid thing? Josh, you wanted to be on it. Oh, yeah, that's right. Where? Why did I want to do that? Where's my paycheck? I want to talk to my attorney <laughs> or my agent, whatever. So let's talk about this uh, terrible Alcatraz segment. Oh my gosh! I don't. I'll, I'll I'll get into that. I got I got some. After rewatching it, I have even more of a, a fervor and passion for this segment than I had before. There's nothing I like more than a good fucking edit in the morning. A good cup of coffee and some editing, which I'm going to have none of. None of tonight. No edits. There's nothing like the smell of editing in the morning. Yeah. All right. Let's get into it. 84, right? I think so. Pretty sure. I believe so. Yes. 1984. Is that a is that a song called 1984? Yeah. Oh wait, isn't that Bowling for Soup? No. Annie Lennox. Oh. It's from the soundtrack from the movie 1984, which is based on the book by George Orwell. Here comes the rain again, falling on my head like a memory. All right, here we go. (laughs) They decided that they would have to make dummy heads to be in their bunks in case one of them was not in there during the guard would go by. (laughs) That was a badly read sentence. Let me do a take two on that. What the fuck? 34, 23... (laughs) <laughs> All right, giggles. Not like you've never fucked up. No, I know. It's just, just this. It's just giggles. A clown over here. <laughs> <laughs> that was creepy. I didn't. You're just gonna make me laugh harder doing that. I didn't know I could. Crusty. I didn't know I could make those sounds. Honestly, <laughs> that's a good Krusty the Clown impersonation there. Okay, let me try this again. Hello. Hey. Hi. <laughs> hey, Mike. How's it going? Um, I'm good. And didn't we already go through this already? Didn't you already ask how I was doing? That's great. 
Uh, it's a bummer that I don't have extra detail for this case because it's not on the unsolved.com website for some dumb reason. Yeah, that's crazy. But it's also not on Amazon, so not surprised. Yeah, that's crazy too. There's, yeah, dude, there's got to be a legal thing going on with that. I can't believe that that. Maybe that's why, uh, what's her Tiffany. name? Tiffany. Yeah, to I can't believe she didn't end up talking to me. That was such a fucking bummer. I bet they like consulted their lawyer or whatever, and they're like, no, you can't talk to anybody about that case or whatever. Probably some lawsuit <laughs> involved or something. Yeah, apparently. And also, I think from what I've heard is Unsolved Mysteries kind of fibbed a bit with some of the stuff that happened, especially apparently the stuff uh, with the with the bunk bed. Um, but that's according to the Tallmans who are trying to be like, oh, it wasn't the bunk bed. It was, you know, that Unsolved Mysteries was just bullshit. Yeah, I think you heard that from me because that's what the husband yeah. told me. Yep. Yeah, like I heard from somewhere. <laughs> you heard it from me. <laughs> well, sorry, we did cover this case. What, like two, almost two years, two years, year ago? and a half ago. <laughs> um, All right, so we're gonna jump back into this now. Yeah. All right, go for go. Well, okay, I guess I'll 